Let's bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of the day. We thank you for the Sabbath. We pray that what we do during your Sabbath and, and really every day, that it would be pleasing to you, that we would walk as worthy disciples of yours, that we would strive to live better each day, that we would set forth the, exa- the, the same examples as your son showed during his own life here on this earth. Father, we thank you now, and we pray that you'd be with those here. We pray that you'd be with those abroad. We pray that you'd be, the, be with this ministry. And we ask all this in the name of your Son, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Amen. Y'all may be seated. It is a blessing to everybody here today. I'd like to extend a welcome to those watching online. Whereas believers in the Messiah, we must learn to separate truth from tradition. You know, for me, this is an essential part of what it means to really be a believer, to be able to, again, separate truth from tradition. You know, we find many examples of this concept within Scripture. You know, one example is in Jeremiah 10, verse 2, something we're going to probably hear more about this month. It says there, learn not the way of the heathen. Learn not the ways of the heathen. Afterwards, it describes what many <laughs> believe is an Xmas tree, and, and it certainly sounds like it. This means that we're not to uh, replicate, we're not to duplicate false worship. Instead, we must worship Yahweh as he defines within his word, and only worship as he defines within his word. You know, Paul, in his epistle to the Philippians, he said that we were to prove all things, prove all things, and hold fast to that which is good. So as believers, we have an obligation to prove what Yahweh says within his word and follow what is right. So again, this is really a pattern. This is a theme. This is really why we're here. We're to prove what Yahweh says within his word. You know, I think in many ways this is a mission statement of this ministry. Proving what scripture says, living according to his word, striving every day to be better than who we are now, striving to understand, striving to apply, not compromising, following without deviating from the right or to the left. Now, before uh, reviewing today's topics, I want to say this from the beginning. This message is not to condemn or to criticize or look down upon those who may not understand what we do here. You know, at one point, many of us did not have the knowledge we do now, And um, so I think for that reason, we should be compassionate when we share these kind of truths. This is somewhat of a hard-hitting message. In fact, I've actually given this message once before, to my knowledge. But since uh, Lucas was uh, scheduled to uh, speak, and I am here, you're getting a repeat. So here's a summary of what we're going to review today, truth or tradition. The first thing we're going to review is the use of the cross. You know, many people wonder, you know, why don't we use the cross here? Truth or tradition, do we find this in Scripture? Is this something we should do? Do we find this historically? What is it about this item or this symbol that we avoid it? Also, we're going to review the etymology of the word church. You know, why don't we use this word in reference to uh, the assembly, as so many do? Lastly, we're going to review the etymology of words, God, and Lord. Now, I know many of you have an aversion of even pronouncing these words, as I do as well. But for the purpose of this ministry today, I'm going to be using these words to explain and to communicate these words. Well, let's first consider the first one here, and that is a cross. Why don't we embrace the cross? What is it about the cross that we find if you will, tradition. It's not truth. Well, I want to first look at a passage we find the word within. So there's lots of examples we find, but Matthew 27 verse 42 says this in the King James. It says, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, it says, and we will believe him. So as we see here in in Matthew, the King James, it says here that Joshua hung and died on a cross. Now, again, is this based on truth or is this based on tradition? You know, as we're going to see in their Greek, that this is really based on 
tradition. In fact, we're going to really spend quite a bit of time looking, investigating cross, and again, why we do not recognize this as a symbol of Scripture, if you will. So how do we know this? Or number one, the word cross is from the Greek word staros, staros, something really most of us should probably know and understand. Staros is the word, and it refers to an upright polar stake, according to most or many references. I want to share just a few with you today. First one is in the vines. Vines, expository dictionary, biblical words, normally we just say vines. But here's what it says, staros, New Testament, 47.16, denotes primarily an upright polar stake. So polar stake. On such malefactors were nailed for execution, both the noun and the verb, staro, to fasten to a stake or pell, originally to be distinguished from the ecclesiastical form of the two beamed cross. The shape of the latter had its origins in ancient Chaldea, and it was used as a symbol of the god Tammuz. So notice that. We're going to talk more about Tammuz. Being in the shape of the mystic Tal, and the initial of his name, in that country and in adjacent lands, including Egypt. By the middle of the 3rd century AD, the church had either departed from or had transvested certain doctrines of the Christian faith. In order to increase the prestige of the apostate ecclesiastical system, pagans were received into the churches apart from regeneration by faith. Notice that. This is, by the way, from a very um, well-accepted source. This is not French. goes on to say this. It says, And were permitted largely to retain their pagan signs and symbols, hence the Taller T, in its most frequent form with the cross piece lowered, was adopted to stand for the cross of Christ. It says, as for the chi or X, which Constantine declared he had seen in a vision leading him to champion the Christian faith, that letter was the initial of the word Christ and had nothing to do with, quote, the cross. You know, what an amazing statement we find here from this, again, well-accepted, well-accepted source. Number one, we find that the word staros refers what? It refers to an upright pole or to a stake. One piece of timber, if you will. In fact, according to Vines, both the noun and the verb refers to the same thing. And again, that is to an upright pole. Now, where did the tradition of the cross originate from? Or according to Vines, it arose in ancient Chaldea. Ancient Chaldea. Now, for those who may not know, Chaldea is another name for Babylon. Very important to understand. Some see Chaldea, they don't realize this connection there to Babylon. You know, so much of the paganism we see within Christianity was barred from Babylon. Matter of fact, the Dakes, I don't have the reference with me, but it talks about all the pagan holidays and symbols within Christianity. And then it says that all of these came from Babylon. Same thing here with the cross. Now, what did the cross symbolize for the Babylonians, for the Chaldeans? Or it says here that it was a symbol of Tammuz. Tammuz. What do we know about Tammuz? So I want to read just a source here. This is a New Unger's Bible Diction, a pretty good source, by the way. And it describes the worship of Tammuz. It says Ezekiel refers to the worship of the Babylonian deity in a vision of his apostate brethren who were enamored of this cult. You know, it's amazing how often Israel did that, by the way. You know, how often we see in Scripture Israel going after false mighty ones. And some people will make the point that, well, the uh, Jews today, they're not doing what Yahweh says. Or, you know, I, I normally I reply with something like, when did the Jews ever do what Yahweh said? Now, there were times, of course, but, you know, they certainly went after other mighty ones many, many times throughout history. This is a prophet saw the women weeping for the God at the north gate of the Jerusalem temple. Tammuz was known by the Babylonians as Dumizi, or Dumuzi, a god of pasture and flocks, of subterranean water and of vegetation. He was the husband-brother of Ishtar, Asherah, fertility goddess. Tammuz supposedly died every autumn when he departed to the underworld. From there he was recovered by the 
consulate Ishtar. His reappearance marked the bursting forth of life in the springtime. The fourth, uh, the, uh, fourth Babylonian month, July, was named in honor of Tammuz, which name was applied to the post later post-biblical times. Notice that. This name was applied to the month on the Jewish calendar, but post-biblical times, meaning it wasn't within the original Jewish Hebraic or biblical calendar. It says post-biblical times by Jews to, the, to their fourth month, June or July. Tammuz is equated with the Greek Adonis and the Egyptian Osiris. Allusions to the worship of Tammuz cults seem to be referenced in Jeremiah 22.18 and Amos 8, verse 8, uh, 10. The worship of this god was widespread through the Fertile Crescent from Babylonia to uh, Assyria to Palestine to Syria. The race of Tammuz included a divine marriage of the king annually to the fertility goddess in the person of a temple priestess. Tammuz worship was especially uh, notorious at Byblos, biblical Gebal, on the Mediterranean. So we see here that the symbol of the cross arose in Babylon symbolizing Tammuz, which was what? Which was a god. It says the, the uh, pasture flocks and along with uh, water and vegetation. So that is what this uh, deity depicted. We also find here that uh, Tammuz was the husband brother of Ishtar. Now, if we know anything about these uh, pagan holidays, we've probably heard the name Ishtar, probably somewhat familiar with it. This was a Babylonian fertility goddess, and where uh, today the Easter celebration is derived from. You know, as we know, the word Ishtar, or Easter, goes back to Ishtar, tracing again back to the Babylonians. We know from Scripture that the Israelites were condemned for the worship of Ishtar, for the worship of Tammuz. In fact, uh, just as a quick side note also, uh, Ishtar is also the queen of heaven, as we find within the book of Jeremiah. You know, from the first commandment, we're told not to worship any other mighty one. There's a reason why I believe Yahweh began with this as the first commandment. This is a very pivotal commandment, and a commandment that, it, that Israel broke time and time again. Now, in addition to what we find from vines, we also see another source. Dr. Bollinger in the Companion Bible also confirms the Greek staros and what it really denotes. This is in Appendix 162 or 162 of the Companion Bible. So here's what it says. It's kind of a lengthy appendix, but I don't want to read all of it here. It says, in the Greek New Testament, two words are used for the cross, on which he says the Lord was put to death. The word staros, which denotes an upright polar stake to which the criminals were nailed for execution. The zulon, zulon, that's something we haven't heard yet, which generally denotes a piece of dead log or wood or timber for fuel or for any other purpose. It is like the uh, didron, which is used of a living or green tree, as in Matthew 28, 1, Revelation 7, 1, 3, 8, verse 7, 9, verse 4, etc. As the latter word zulon is used for the former staros, it shows us that the meaning of each is exactly the same. The verb staro means to derive stakes. Our English word cross is the translation of the Latin crux. So crux is cross. Well, it's not what we find in the King James or the, in the New Testament. It goes on to say, but the Greek staros no more means a crux than the word stick means a crutch. Homer uses the word staros of an ordinary pole or stake or a single piece of timber. And this is the meaning and usage of the word throughout the Greek classics. It never means two pieces of timber placed across one another at any angle, but always of one piece alone. Hence, the use of the word zulon in connection with the manner of the, quote, Lord's death, it says, and rendered tree in Acts 5.30, 10.39, 13.29, Galatians 3.13, 1 Peter 2.24. This is preserved in our old English name, Rod or Ruderat. So we find that zulon, again, as we see here, is often rendered tree, while again, Soros is generally rendered, as we see in the King James, as cross. It should be really state or something similar. 
Now it goes on to say this in this uh, source. It says the uh, catacombs in Rome bear the same testimony. This is really intriguing, by the way, if, you, if you've ever really uh, looked into this. It says that Christ is never represented there as hanging on a cross. And the cross itself is only portrayed in a veiled and hesitating manner. In the Egyptian churches, the cross was a pagan symbol of life barred by the Christians. Notice that. Notice what it said there. It was a pagan symbol of life borrowed by the Christians and reinterpreted and interpreted in the pagan manner. So according to a Dr. Bollinger, we again see here that the Greek starist doesn't refer to two pieces of timber or to a cross, but as we see here, it refers to a single piece of timber or to a polar stake. And we find a counterpart, zulon, within the Greek, and it basically means the same thing, often rendered tree. But again, never a crux, never a cross, as we find within most modern translations. Now, another point reference he makes here is to these ancient Roman catacombs. This is really, really intriguing. When I learned about this years ago, I was just amazed at the fact that we don't see evidence for the cross within these catacombs. Now, most scholars believe that the uh, catacombs in Rome began sometime around the 2nd century and was used until about the 4th century. It served as an underground burial for early Christians. Now, you would think that if the cross was common among Christianity during this time, which was very early in the church, that you would see evidence of this within the Roman catacombs. But we don't see this, not according to Dr. Bollinger. There's no depictions there of Yahshua hanging on a cross. You know, as a side note, there's also another intriguing thing we find in these catacombs. Here's a depiction I want to share with you. This is a depiction, they say about the 4th century, but this is a, a depiction of uh, Yahshua there in the center with some of the disciples, as is believed. And as you see here, there's no resemblance between what we find uh, with the traditional Messiah. You know, the Messiah today is depicted as a European, very white, nice, straight nose, flowing blonde here, whatever it is. But we see here, based on this, that he was likely of darker complexion and resembled somebody from the Middle East, not Europe. Now, Bollinger also confirms here that the cross was borrowed from the Egyptians, by the Egyptian, and reinterpreted by Christianity. You know, this is something we find so often in the history of the church. So often do we find Christianity taking a symbol, taking a day, taking an event, and reinterpreting that event, and re-sanctifying, if you will, if there is such a thing, and applying it to the Christian faith. You know, a great example of that is a day that will be coming up very, very shortly, and that is Christmas. The day Christmas goes back to the worship of the S-U-N, sun worship. And they basically took the S-U-N and reinterpreted that for the S-O-N. And it doesn't work that way. We shouldn't be doing that as believers. Again, fact or or truth or tradition. Truth or tradition. It's important that we get truth, not tradition. I want to read one more reference with the cross. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Great reference, by the way. Who's going to argue with the Encyclopedia Britannica? So here's what it says, the 11th edition, page 506. This is, from a simplicity of form, the cross has been used both as a, as a religious symbol as and as an ornament from the dawn of man's civilization. Various objects dating from periods long interred to the uh, Christian era, have been found marked with crosses of different designs in almost every part in the old world. India, Syria, Persia, and Egypt have all yielded numberless examples, while numerous instances dating from the latter Stone Age to the Christian times have been found in nearly every part of Europe. The, year, uh, the use of the cross as a religious symbol is pre in pre-Christian times, and among non-Christian peoples may probably be regarded as almost universal. And in very many cases, it was connected with some form 
of nature worship. This is the Encyclopedia Britannica. And as we see here, the origin of the cross is undeniably pagan. You know, as we see, it was used by pagans long before, long before the church ever adopted this as a symbol. According to this source, it was found in nearly every part of the world, including places like India, Syria, Persia, and Egypt. It also confirms here that the symbol of the cross was used universally, almost universally, within nature worship. Long before, again, the church adopted this and reinterpreted this symbol as a reference to the Messiah. Well, I want to summarize just some of the points we've covered with the uh, cross. Number one, it comes from the Greek staros, which refers to an upright polar post, stake of some sort. Yahshua hanging on a cross is missing from the ancient catacombs in Rome. Very important to understand. Contrary to popular belief, this was not the same symbol used by the Emperor Constantine, which was the Cairo, the first two letters of the, in Christ. And finally, the symbol of the cross is a pagan origin going back to Babylon, which was later adopted by Christianity and then reinterpreted for the Messiah. So again, we see the history, we see the, the origin of this very pagan symbol. You know, it's for this reason that we abstain from it here, and that's why we, again, don't use the word or use crosses a symbol as an image here at the ministry. Well, let's now move on to another truth or, or fiction, and that is to the etymology of the word church. You know, some people wonder, you know, I never hear you guys say church. You never refer to the assembly as a church. Why is that? Why do you abstain or refrain from using this word? We know that Christianity uses this word as a to describe a place of worship. But is that, again, truth or tradition? What do we find? What do we know? What we know is based on tradition. I want to begin today with looking at the Webster's New 20th Century Dictionary used under the word church. So it says this. It says Middle English, Kirky, Kirka, Kirky, Anglo-Saxon, Circe, or Circe, of uh, late Greek, Kirikon, a church from Greek, Kirika, supply, doma, house, the Lord's house, from Kriakos, belonging to the Lord or master, Kyrios, Lord, master, Kairos, supreme power or authority. So I want to focus on two points here. Number one, the word church. Primarily, if you read the definition here, refers to a house or to a building. It refers to a house or to a building. You know, as we'll see, the uh, Greek for assembly, ekklesia, I'll describe that later. But it doesn't refer to a building, not really. And we'll, we'll get into that as we go get into that message or, you know, once we get there. Number two, one of the etymological roots of church is from the Anglo-Saxon Circe or Circe. A fact that many people are unaware of is that Circe, or Circe, it refers to a pagan goddess. And again, I want to refer to the Encyclopedia Britannica. I really like to refer to these accepted sources. You know, who's going to argue with the Encyclopedia Britannica? Or well, some will, but... So it says Circe, or Circe is Greek, in Greek legend, a sorceress, a daughter of Helios, the sun god, and of the ocean nymph, Per se, she was able by means of drugs and incantations to change humans into wolves, lions, and swine. You know, we see here that according to Greek mythology, Circe was a sorceress, turned uh, humans into animals. And again, as we find through the word church, this is one of the etymological roots of this word. So the question is this, should we as believers use such a word in reference to the Messiah, to the body of Messiah, to the body of believers? You know, the Bible shows that as believers we must worship in spirit and truth and show a distinction between what Yahweh ordains and what Yahweh does not ordain. You know, for this reason alone, I believe that we should be avoiding the word church as it pertains to worship 
Again, looking at the root of this word, it can refer to Circe. And who in the world would ever want to refer to their place of worship after a, after a pagan goddess, as we find through mythology? And I also mentioned this word really doesn't convey the meaning of the word ekklesia, as we find in the Greek. This word really means an assembly or a body of believers, not to a building. I want to uh, read a few references here. But again, as we can see, the word church, again, refers to a building very different from the uh, Greek ekklesia and uh, the Hebrew equivalent, which is kahal. Now, according to the Thayer's Greek lexicon, this is the definition for ekklesia. And again, this is where we uh, derive the word church, as we see in most translations. It says, quote, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly. So does that sound like a building to you? No, it's a calling out of a group of believers. It's not referring to a building. Same thing with kahal. Brown Driver Brooks defines this word as an assembly, a company, a congregation, or a convocation. So again, congregation, convocation. Now, obviously, some many times we'll congregate, we'll convocate within a building. doesn't mean we have to congregate in the building. We can congregate in the parking lot. The assembly is not the building. The assembly, the ecclesia, are those of the assembly. And that's an important point to understand. So, again, we see here that Greek ecclesia in the Hebrew kahal refers to a body of believers, not to a building, not to a building. And, again, that's one reason we don't use the word church. It really doesn't even reflect the meaning that we find within the Hebrew or the Greek. Now, this is really intriguing. I don't know how many are familiar with the uh, Tyndale translation, but he uh, rendered ecclesia's congregation. Congregation. You're not going to find the word church in the Tyndale translation, except in one place, and that is in Acts 19, verse 37, which is in reference to a pagan temple. So in every instance, this man rendered the word ecclesia as congregation because he understood that this wasn't a church. It was a congregation. It was an assembly. I want to share one more reference on the word church, this time from uh, Fawcett's Bible Dictionary. Here's what it says. It's from, from the uh, Greek Kyrie, house of the Lord. It says, a word which passed to the Gothic tongue, the Goths being the first of the northern hordes, converted to Christianity. Notice that. That's kind of important to realize you know, these, these Goths, these were the Celts. They were very pagan, so much paganism. And, and these were the first. And they infiltrated and they changed and they manipulated and they transformed the church. Goes on to say, adopted the word from the Greek Christians of Constantinople. And so it came to us, Anglo-Saxons, the uh, trench study of words is a reference there. The Lipsius from Cir- uh, Circus, maybe pronouncing that right, uh, wrong there, but from whence Kirk or a circle because of the oldest temples as the Druid ones were a circular in form. Goes on to say Ecclesia in the New Testament never means the building or house of assembly because church buildings were built long after the apostolic age. It means an organized body whose unity does not depend on its being met together in one place, not in an assemblage or of atoms, but members in their several places united to the one head, says their Christ, and forming one organic living whole. You know, so based on this, where did the word church come from? Or according to this, now again, there's different sources we Saw one saying something different, but it says here that the word church came from the Goths of the Druidic faith. You know, as a side note, these are the same people that Paul was referring to in the book of Galatians. Galatians 4, verse 10. It's a very popular passage used by those within the church to say that the feast days are no longer necessary. And Paul, he says there that I'm afraid of you. You know, why are you observing these times and days Well, these times that he's referring to in the book of Galatians is not biblical days, but it's days that these these Gauls were bringing into the church. It's these Celtic worship. 
You know, we see here that this was first introduced, according to the source, to the Greek Christians in Constantinople. This is the Istanbul of the modern country of Turkey. So according to Fawcett, the word church is connected with pagan temples of the Celtic faith. So a bit different from what we see from other sources. Now this same source also confirms that this word doesn't share the same connotation, the same idea that we find through the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia refers to, again, a body of believers. It refers to a called out people, not to a building, not to a structure. Again, we can meet anywhere, but the assembly is the folks in this room. The assembly are those watching this broadcast. That is the assembly. The assembly is not this structure. The assembly is not this building. This is where we come to worship, but the ecclesias are the people within it. And that is why there is a distinction between the word church and the Greek of ecclesia or kahal, as we find within the Hebrew. And again, it's for this reason why we abstain from using the word church. Certainly pagan in origin. If it's not one way, it's another. And it certainly doesn't describe the Greek ecclesia and what that really means. Now, the next uh, truth or tradition I want to focus on is the etymology of the word God. And you know, it's amazing how easily this is really, um, we can prove this. There's multiple, multiple way, ways we can show that this is something we should be avoiding. So we know that this is not based on truth, it's based on tradition. We see this from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Again, I really prefer to quote from these recognized sources. Fossus, by the way, is another great reference, very well accepted. So the Encyclopedia Britannica, here's this definition for God. This is God, the common Teutonic word. Teutonic, by the way, is dramatic. That's what it is, in case you don't know. Teutonic word for a personal object of religious worship. It is thus applied to all those superhuman beings of the heathen mythologies and exer- who exercise power over nature and man and are often identified with some particular sphere of activity. And also to the visible material objects, whether an image of the supernatural being or, uh, or a tree, pillar, etc. Used as a symbol, an idol. The word God on the conversion of the Teutonic races to Christianity. So, so you know, we just talked about the, the uh, Celts, right? The Gauls. This is the same group as the ancient, uh, or it's close anyway. It's not quite the same, but these are the ancient Germans, but very similar. It says, conversion of the Teutonic races to Christianity was adopted as the name of the one supreme being. The uh, creator of the universe and the persons of the Trinity, of course, we know that's wrong, but we'll just gloss over that. The new uh, English dictionary points out that whereas the old Teutonic type of the word is neuter, corresponding to the Latin uh, numen, in uh, the Christian applications, it becomes masculine. And that even where the earlier neuter form is still kept, as in Gothic and Old Norwegian, so there it is, Gothic again, and Norwegian, those, Norwe- those pagan Norweg- Norwegians. I say that tongue-in-cheek, my, fam- my wife and her family's uh, from that line, I believe. The uh, construction is masculine. God is a uh, word common to all, it says, Teutonic languages. Notice that. This word is common to all the Teutonic tr- uh, or Germanic languages. In Gothic, it is guth. Dutch has the same form as English. Spain, uh, Danish and Swedish have gut. German got, according to the New English Dictionary, the original may be found in two Aryan words, roots, both of the form guru, one of which means to invoke, the other to pour. The last is used of sacrificial offerings. The word with us mean the object either of religious invocation or of religious worship by sacrifice. It has been also suggested that the word might mean a molten image from the sense of a poor. So again, all of that is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, we see here that the word God, as it comes to us, comes from the Teutonic or Germanic word. It refers to pagan mythology, all these figures we find within pagan mythology, and also possibly even to a molten image as to pour as we find through the root, one of the roots. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather not use a word in reference to the mighty one of this universe that contains pagan mythology, roots to pagan mythology, into possibly a molten image. You know, some may argue, though, that well, this isn't the meaning today. We're not using it in that sense. We know Christianity, it has a, uh, has a history, again, of doing this, of, of taking something of, of pagan origin and reapplying it, reinterpreting it. Listen, we don't have that ability. We don't have that authority to reinterpret something that is pagan. Yahweh says, learn not the ways of the heathen. Yahweh doesn't say, learn the ways of the heathen and reinterpret them for me. He says, learn not the way of the heathen, period. You know, why risk offending the most important being in this universe with a term that originally referred to a pagan, pagan worship? Possibly, again, to engrave an ed- image of some sort. You know, we all remember and we all know the story of, of the Israelites making the graven image, the molten image at Mount Sinai. We know how Yahweh was displeased with this. He saw this as a form of blasphemy, false worship. So again, why would we risk offending our Father in Heaven with a title that goes back to a molten image, that goes back to Druidic practices, to this Teutonic tongue as we find? And speaking about the Teutonic or Germanic language, I want to delve into this just a little bit more. I want to share with you two more references, and these are both from the 1800s both confirming that the word God was a proper name from the uh, Teutonic supreme being or possibly to their pantheon of uh, multiple deities. So the first is the uh, Indenburg Review, or critical journal. And it says this, it is much more difficult to trace the Teutonic word God back to its origin. There is no doubt that the supreme being was always been called by this name in all Germanic tongues or Teutonic tongues. We can only say, therefore, that God was probably an old Teutonic word used long before the introduction of Christianity to signify either one supreme being or gods in general. Indeed, we find that the Old Norse god in the neuter means a grave or graven image, an idol. So again, another source showing that this is from the Teutonic tongue, from the Germanic tongue, and referring possibly to a supreme deity or possibly to a pantheon or to multiple beings. It's not sure. Okay, here's another one, Teutonic mythology. This is from Jacob Grimm, 1882, pages 13 and 15. It says, in all Teutonic tongues, the supreme being was always with one consent been called by the general name God. Some remarkable uses of the word God in her older speech, and that of the common people may have a connection with heathen nations. You know, we basically find the same message from both references here, and that is that the word God in the Teutonic or Germanic tongue was the proper name or name of their supreme deity, or possibly to multiple deities. They also confirmed here that this word was used long before Christianity decided to use it in reference to our Father in Heaven. And that's a point I want to really impress upon you. This word was used in reference to pagan mighty ones long before Christianity used it, adopted it, in reference to Almighty Yahweh. That's not something we can do. That's not something we can do. You know, we also see here, again, it refers to... uh, Graven images or idols, according to the, to the one source or to heathen notions. Now, knowing this, how could we justifiably use the word God in reference to the one we worship? How can we justifiably use this word in reference to Yahweh? You know, the Bible is clear that we're to honor, hallow, sanctify, and praise the name of Yahweh. That's what it says. The Bible is very clear that we are to pay great respect in honor to Yahweh's name. When we use a title that's connected with pagan worship, we're not showing him due honor. I can assure you that. We're not showing him proper honor. Now, there's one more connection actually I want to consider here, and that is to 
Norse mythology. Norse, of course, we've already talked about that in some of these references, but I want to give an example. So we see an example of this with Odin. We're all familiar with Odin, right? Where again, from the Encyclopedia Britannica, we find that Odin can be pronounced a bit differently. So the Encyclopedia Britannica says alternate titles for Odin includes Godin or Godin. It's probably pronounced Godin, I'm assuming. Odin, Woden, Woden, Woten. Woden, also called Woden or Woden or Woten, one of the principal gods in Norse mythology. From earliest times, Odin was a god, was a war of god, or was a god, was a war god, and he appeared in heroic literature as the protector of heroes. Fallen warriors joined him in Valhalla. The wolf and the raven were dedicated to him. His magical horse, Slipner, which, by the way, there's a. Uh, I'm not going to get into it today, but there's a uh, tradition that says that Rudolph goes back to Slipner to this uh, horse that Odin would ride. It's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if there's true or not, but, but um, I do think there may be some connections there with Slipner to, to Rudolph. Says the uh, wolf and raven were dedicated to him. His magic horse, Slipner, had eight legs, teeth inscribed with runes, and the ability to gallop through the air and over the sea. Sounds a lot like Rudolph to me, except for the legs. Odin was the great magician among the gods. He was also the god of poets. In outward appearance, he was a tall, old man with flowing beard and, the, and only one eye. The other he gave in exchange for wisdom. He was usually depicted wearing a cloak and a wide-brimmed hat and carrying a spear. So we see here the Mythology of Odin, principal god in Norse mythology. And along with Odin, as we saw from the list, he also had the titles Woden, 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 and also Godin, G-O-D-A-N. So in this last example, we see the word God in connection with this Celtic deity. There's a connection with Norse mythology and this word God. It is inescapable. This is just one more example showing this connection between the word God and this Teutonic and Kel- or Celtic religion. So again, the question should, is, should we as believers be using this in reference to our Father in Heaven? Where I propose the answer is an absolutely emphatic No. The last truth or tradition I want to explore today is the etymology and use of the word Lord. Again, a lot of people ask, why don't you use this? Why have you removed this word from your liturgy? Why do you refrain from this word? Well, I'm going to explain why we refrain from this word. I want to begin by uh, quoting the Barnhart Concise Dictionary of Etymology. The Barnhart Concise Dictionary of Etymology says, this is on page 442, and it says, Lord, before 1121, uh, Laverde, Lavord, Lord, about 1250, developed from Old English, Laford, master of the household, ruler, superior, literally one who guards a loaf or loaves. So we see here that the word Lord originated sometime around, or it says here, 1121 or 1250. And really comes from the Hebrew Laford, and it means master of the household. It can also mean, it says here, one who guards a loaf, a loaf of bread. Now, I don't know about you, but to use a word that conveys this idea of guarding a loaf of bread to the maker of this grand universe seems a bit demeaning. Seems a bit demeaning to me. You know, Yahweh is so much more than this. Now, Beyond this, we find another reason why we're to avoid this word. According to the New Unger's Bible Dictionary, there's a connection between Lord and and Baal. So here's what it says. This is a New Unger's Bible Dictionary. It says, Baal, Hebrew Baal, Lord, possessor. It says a common name 
for God among the Phoenicians, also the name of their chief male god. Keep in mind that most of the ancient world was polytheistic. I know today we kind of have a hard time relating to polytheism because it's very much of a monotheistic world today. Uh, Christianity is, no, I mean, they have the Trinity, but it's one. They, they, they say it's one, so we'll just take it as one. But you have Islam, and certainly that is a monotheistic faith, and Judaism, of course, is a monotheistic faith. So really all the faiths of today are monotheistic, but, but not of the ancient world. Most religions of the ancient world were polytheistic. Number two, it says a word is used of the, ma- of the master of a house. Notice that, master of a house. We, we just talked about that, right? With, an- with another word. We're a landowner, an owner of cattle, and so on. The word is often used as a prefix to names of towns and men, Balgad, Balhanan. There are several things I want to point out here. Number one, the word Baal was a common name for the Phoenician gods and also the proper name for their main deity. Again, they were polytheistic. Number two, similar to the English word Laford, I don't know if you picked up on this, we see here that Baal can also refer to master of a house. Master of a house. This is basically the same definition of LaFord within the English. Now, some people may downplay this connection, but I believe we see an important connection between these two words, between the word Baal and the word Lord and, and, and the connection these have with one another. Now, as I've already mentioned, not only is this word demeaning, but I believe it also likely has a connection with paganism as we find through Baal, through this Phoenician word. I want to close with a prophecy, and this is really amazing. I know many of you probably know this, but this is really striking. So Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 27. It says, Which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man, man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. So what do we find here in this prophecy? We see here that Jeremiah prophesies that Yahweh's that Yahweh's people would forget his name for who? For Baal. Now remember that the word Baal can also mean Lord. You know, here's what's really amazing about this prophecy. In verse 20, it gives us a clue as to when this applies. So here's what it says in verse 20. It says, The anger of Yahweh shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days... Now listen, in the latter days, you shall consider it perfectly. In the latter days, and that's verse 20. So verse 20 says that we're going to understand this prophecy in the latter days. I believe that we're in the latter days. I believe that what we find here is being fulfilled in this day and age. Today, Yahweh's name has been replaced by a title that's connected with Baal, with Lord. You know, for me, this is far beyond a coincidence. You know, some may say, or it's, you know, there, there really is no connection between Lord and Baal, and, or I, I think there is. You know, I think it's, wake, it's just beyond coincidental that we have this prophecy here in Jeremiah 23 saying that in the latter days you will understand this prophecy, and that in the latter days they're going to forget my name for Baal. You know, again, it says here that his name would be forgotten, and we see that today through the use of the word Lord. You know, in fact, the use of Lord in place of Yahweh's name goes back to the Jewish tradition of the Jews concealing Yahweh's name with the vow points of Adonai, now, Adonai, now it is, Adonai is a Hebrew word, by the way. There's a lot of dispute with Adonai. I believe it's in the Hebrew text. Traditionally, it's rendered, though, as Lord or my Lord. Lord, most often, but one of the two. It can also mean sovereign or master, any of those, but it's often rendered Lord. You know, this was done because the Jews believed that Yahweh's name was too holy to use. So they concealed it by 
by using the vow points of Adonai. And when the reader saw the vow points of Adonai, they, they knew to say Adonai. Now, even though their intentions were good, they concealed Yahweh's name from the world and really brought it to nothing. You know, if they did not do this, um, I believe that we may see Yahweh's name. Because what the translators did is they simply followed this tradition. They noticed, they recognized what the Jews were doing, and they followed in this tradition. But again, all of this breaks the third commandment because it brings Yahweh's name to naught. And we, we have to use Yahweh's name. That's what scripture says. So this is another reason we refrain from using Lord. It's really a replacement for Yahweh's name. Most of the time when you see Lord, especially in the uh, Old Testament, and I believe the true, tr- same would also be true for the New we go back to the Hebrew and it's Yahweh. Now there's a few instances where it's Adonai or, or uh, another word or even Baal, in fact. But most of the time, it is Yahweh. You know, as believers, we're to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Now for those who are new again to this message, I would encourage you to have an open mind and to prove what I've shared today. The fact is we alone are responsible for our own salvation. If we choose to study or not to study and to simply follow and listen and, and go with whatever our minister says, we alone will deal with those consequences. And you know that, you know, as a side note, that gives me a lot of, a lot of peace as a minister because I don't believe it's my job to dictate or force anybody to do anything. I believe it's my job to try to help you understand the truth. But whether you follow that truth is up to you. I'm not going to stand with you. I'm not going to be there when, we, when you stand before the judgment seat. You, you and you alone will stand. And you will determine and you will dictate the decision by what you do, by what you allowed, by what you followed. And that gives me great hope. It, it removes that pressure from me. Because I don't have to be concerned about what you do. I have to simply be concerned about speaking what is of Yahweh and making sure that things within the ministry are in order. So again, we're all responsible. You know, I pray it and hope that like the noble Bereans, we would study and search and approve what scripture says. Well, I pray that this message has been a blessing to you. I pray that we've learned a few things. You know, I hope and pray that we would Strive every day to walk in the examples of our Savior, but in the end, to please the one we worship. You know, whether that's avoiding some of these words, avoiding some of these symbols, or even more importantly, keeping things like the Sabbath, the feast days, it's all important. So I pray that this has been a blessing. I pray that Yahweh's blessings would be upon you, and may Yahweh bless you.